it's your girl Rebecca and Lily and you're listening to just ghouly things hey boo things and welcome back to just ghouly things and we are your bootsyful hosts Rebecca and Lily so before we get started with the topic Lily and I were just talking before we hit record and we are both so fucking hyped for this topic I'm so excited. So when I asked you the two cases you were doing, like, uh I'm so into both of those. Yes, yes. And, like, this is, like, this is a topic that's been a long time coming, but, like, we just haven't talked about because I I still feel like it's under the umbrella of paranormal, but there hasn't been evidence of it being, like, it hasn't involved ghosts necessarily Mm -hmm. because... You'll see what we're getting at, like as but as we continue. It's paranormal. But. It's not normal. Exactly. So, so I just wanted to talk real quick. Um, so you guys always DM us, and we love communicating back and forth with you through DM. So always feel free to DM us on Instagram at Just Ghouly Things Podcast. So we have a new listener, and I'm not going to put their name yet because I don't know if like they care if I am putting this on the episode, but they'll figure it out. So. <laughs> This person goes. Ooh, good <laughs> that person's probably on the edge of their seat right now. Is it me? Is it me? Well, they will find out just now. So they DM'd us this week and said, "So just wanted to let you know, I've started your podcast from. Uh, I'm on episode ten now and trying to binge listen to it all. We'll let you know when I'm done and what I think. So far, I'm enjoying the evolution of the podcast. And only thing that bothers me is when there is yelling into the mic. Kind of <laughs> kills my eardrums. But again, I'm really enjoying the show to see where it all ends." <laughs> I saw that one. I was like, yeah. And you know what's so funny to me is because we always say, you know, listen from the beginning of our episodes and then listen to all of them until now. But I feel like at the same time, it's like we want you guys to listen from the beginning, but like we also don't because we have grown so much since the first episode. Oh, absolutely. I was talking with one of my roommates about it and I was like, Honestly, like, listen to the newer stuff first because it's really, like, how we've blossomed and then go back and listen to the old stuff because it'll be, I feel like that's, you know, it, it all yeah. depends on personal preference, but, like, that way you kind of, like, see what we are now and then you can go back and, like, listen to, like, our fetus voices a whole year ago, Exactly, way and, like, it's, it's, it's so true, though, because that's a good way of looking at it. Because you should just get to, like, warm up and love us from our evolution. And then when you're fully invested in this podcast, then go listen to our first and second episodes where, like, we didn't understand what mic levels were and (laughs) didn't understand that the word like and um is super fucking annoying when it's being put on a podcast. So many many likes from me because I was a basic bitch. And I still am, but I'm a little more aware of what I say before I speak it. Yeah. But, yeah. It's it, kind of like Pokemon. You know what I'm saying? Like, like Eevee, you know Eevee the Pokemon? Of course. So it's like, Eevee's cute, but mm-hmm. what, dra- what draws your attention is like Jolteon, which is, an, which is like the evolved Eevee. Okay. Shout out to my Pokemon fans. Or I'm, like kind of, I'm kind of getting yeah, this. Nine, Ninetales is my favorite Pokemon. Who is my I favorite? I like Squirtle. Oh, well, Squirtle, Squirtle's amazing. But anyways, nine, anyway, the point is that 
definitely like get to know us for who we are and like what our intentions are with like the newer episodes and then go back and be like holy shit like the journey but if you want to live it with us you know start from the beginning if you're not gonna judge us (laughs) you can you know what you can judge us but like understand that we literally started with zero experience of podcasting i mean I, on my end, did research on how to upload what we did. But besides that, I really had never listened to podcasts before. And really, I mean, we just did this out of for fun. And so, yeah, there's not really much else to it. So don't expect it to be like a million dollar budget uh, podcast studio quality. It's still not there, but we're getting there. Slowly um, but surely. Actually, no, pretty quickly, I think. I think, I, especially for a year, I feel like we've grown a lot. For sure. And I feel like even us as people have grown so much in a year, and I feel like it's it really reflects in our podcast episodes as well. Yeah. Like, I, I, I could at least, you know, I think I could speak for both of us. Like, I feel like I've seen you grow so much in the past year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I've grown a lot in the past you year. You have grown so much. So it's it's really cool to be able to look back. I mean, you have to understand, For the, we've had a lot of people DM us asking questions about how we started podcasting and, like, what do I need to do? What equipment? And to be honest with you guys, the equipment that I bought. Buy a microphone. Yeah, buy a microphone and the mixer. And, like, it literally was, like, I think... Well, actually, I can't really say exact prices because a majority of the equipment Mike got for Christmas for me, but the mixer alone was like 75 bucks. So it really, it didn't break the bank. Um, Mm -hmm. You spend, it's going to be like a few hundred bucks, Um, but we, I, yeah, what? It's, it's an investment. It's the kind of thing that you buy once. It's not like a disposable spoon. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. It's not like, you know, you go and you buy four Chinette plates that you're going to throw out in the garbage (laughs) at the barbecue at the park. No, this is a gourmet, shatterproof plate that you're going to buy, and it's microwave safe, it's dishwasher safe, you can eat any kind of meal on it and do whatever the fuck you want. I like that analogy. I would have never reached that far, but you did it, and it was very successful. So kudos to you. Thank um, you. But like I was saying, you know, I use GarageBand, and then I upload it on an RSS feed. And people are so – I mean, it's great to be a perfectionist and to want everything to be super professional. First impressions are important. But we need to remember that so many of the people we look up to on the internet that are Instagrammers or podcasters or hosts, they started just like all of us, figuring it out. If you look back and they look back on their first videos or episodes, they probably cringe too. And they're like, oh my God, what was I thinking? Like, this is so unprofessional. This is so bad. But it gets you somewhere. Like, you have to take that step. And you have to take that leap of faith in yourself and just do it. And once you do Mm -hmm. it, that's where you learn and you grow and you fail. And some people may not like your podcast or some people may not like your YouTube or your Instagram. But not everyone's going to like everything you do. There's always going to be people that find some shit to complain about or hate about. Yeah. So you can't be worried about that. And just be worried that, like, as long as you're happy with the content you're creating, that's all that really matters. I love that. That's so inspiring, Rebecca. I did not, we did not mean to go on this rant, but I honestly am so fucking excited about this topic that I feel like a motivational speech before this topic just is like icing on the cake. 
we are starting on such a positive note for such a sad <laughs> We need it, guys. But I, I think this is going to be a good lengthy episode, too. I feel it in my bones. Oh, it's going to be a juicy one. Super juicy. So, Lily, do you care to tell our boo things what this week's episode's on? Murder. Yes. Mysterious murder. Unsolved mysteries. Dun, dun, dun. So, I, I feel like a lot of paranormal enthusiasts also go hand in hand with people that like true crime. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm the type of person that like I I don't know if you listen to podcasts, Lil, but I started listening to my favorite murder, and I absolutely love that podcast. There are two women that talk about um, just they've gone past just murders and they do all different types of crimes, hometown murders and crimes, and they're just really funny to listen to. And I can literally <laughs> the other day I was at Dunkin' Donuts through the drive through and I it, they got to like an episode where they were talking about someone's throat being slit and I just got up to the stand where I was paying and the guy <laughs> looked at me so crazy <laughs> and I just blew it off. Like I was like, Yeah, um how much was it again? And he's like looking at me because I'm like they're talking about like dissecting a body and slitting the throat, and I find it so normal to be listening to this stuff. And you I know as it. soon as that morning rush was over, he was like, "Uh, did you see that sedan come through? <laughs> <laughs> Are the security cameras working?" <laughs> and I, and Mike always finds it so weird how into true crime I am he swears that like he's always watching his back he's like because you could probably come up with the perfect murder because of how much research you do on true crime and to be honest I can't argue with him there I think I can I think I can probably come up with a great fucking murder just you ever, saying. like, watch, like, an episode of a show on a murder or listen to a podcast episode and you think, okay, what would I do differently? Thousand percent. Could or not l- get caught when they talk about a suspect? I totally judge the shit out of the fucking people that that kill people and then get arrested because they did something so stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, really, you're not going to wear gloves when you open their door? Like, do you not... Did you never hear fingerprints? Right? You're not going to fucking... Okay, here's a genius plot that I have. All right, let's hear it. Okay, this is going to definitely backfire on me because someday someone's going to happen and I'm going to end up blamed for the murder and someone's going to dig this podcast up. Disclaimer, we do not condone murder. Yeah, I would never, honestly, no. If anyone were to die in my life, like, who I knew, I, I, I cry when fake people die. You know what I mean? Like, in a movie or, like, when a dog dies. Like, I am not emotional, like, Physically, maybe I'm capable of it, but emotionally, there is no way I have the capacity to actually murder someone. Mm -mm. I have too much of a guilty conscience. Right? But if I did, (laughs) the key is to frame yourself. What? So you know how people always say, oh, I was framed. Oh, they framed me. Oh, who framed Roger Rabbit? Right? Shit like that. Okay. Think about it. Let's say, you know, okay, for example, DNA can be found, right? And DNA doesn't lie. It does not. So, like, there's no way that I would ever do this because my DNA would be all over the body and I'd get, like, you know, what's it called? Arrested? I almost said captured. (laughs) But you can always say, oh, you know, you can intentionally frame yourself, like leaving like a piece of lint behind from, say, a fuzzy sweater, right? Okay. Like those things shed. 
So buy two of the same fuzzy sweaters, wear one, sell, you sell one to like Plato's closet, right? If they take it, they're kind of picky, (laughs) but like give the sweater to Goodwill, do something, right? You wear the second one you bought to commit the crime and then burn it. And then when they say this matches a sweater you have, you say, no, it doesn't, sweetie. I sold that sweater a month ago. The murder happened a week ago. Oh, shit. But you got to make sure that the shirt... You You know how many H&Ms there are in the general area? But you got to make sure that if you buy that shirt from H&M, you buy one with a credit card and one with cash. Oh, absolutely. Or like a burner phone. Pay for a burner phone in cash. Always. Always. That's like Or have someone buy it for you. Get like a homeless person and then be like, hey, like, I'll find you a place to stay. I'll pay your rent forever. You know, you won't be homeless anymore. I don't know where I'm going with this, but like, you know what I mean? Like, say all, like, let me murder this person and I'll pay $600 a month for you to live safely and keep my secret. And then they can't complain because if they give you back to the cops, who's going to pay their rent? I feel like that's a hella risky scenario, Lily, but I like your boldness. And I think that it could fucking work because it's that crazy of an idea. (laughs) I remember my grandfather... Rest in peace, Grandpa Angelo. This man was insane. And to get out of jury duty once, he had a friend who was a doctor. Okay. And his doctor friend wrote him a diagnosis for mobilizing claustrophobia. Hmm. Have you ever heard of immobilizing claustrophobia? I cannot say I have. Okay, so that's just like the classic claustrophobia where you like you're in a tight space or you feel like you're in a tight, compact space and your body just shuts down and you can't move and you panic. Okay. Immobilizing claustrophobia straight up doesn't exist. My grandfather and his friend said, okay, tell the judge when they're doing jury selection that if you sit in a small place for too long, you get up and start running around in circles. And it worked. It was so crazy that it worked. You guys, that's another tip. If you, once quarantine gets lifted and they start asking people to do jury duty, you know what to do. Thanks, Lily. claustrophobia, baby. (laughs) Oh, God. Again, your family and your stories are never, there's never too little of them. I posted a crazy message that I got from a stranger on my Instagram story. Uh Uh-huh. And someone, like, chatted me on it. A listener chatted me on it and was like, this week on Lily's Crazy Story. (laughs) Actually, though, it's not even being dramatic. Like, Lily lives the craziest fucking life. You guys wouldn't even believe half the shit that comes out of this girl's mouth. And it's all truth. (laughs) It's all fucking true. If you guys are new, like, you have no idea. All right, anyways, let's get into the, the cases. Do you want to start or should I start? Uh, you start, you start, you start. Uh, I want. I'm so excited for this. Okay, okay. This is a lot of fucking pressure because I feel like you always start and like I'm like mentally like I'm not used to this. Okay. All right. So. Well, we're changing things up this week. We are changing things up, and I'm so here for it. Okay. I'm pulling up one of my articles that I am using for this. So my first. Unsolved Mystery is we are talking about the chilling case of America's missing boy, a.k.a. the boy in the box. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's all right, Lily. You're going to hell. It's fine. So 
So, I have flames on my shirt today. Do you really? Yeah, so it's only fitting. Very fitting, actually. So on February 25th, 1957, the body of a young boy was found in a box in an illegal dumping ground in Philadelphia. His mysterious murder caused various speculations and controversies throughout America. So I'm going to I'm going to post all the pictures from all of the stories we're going to be talking about today. But this specific story is super fucked up because this takes place in 1957, right? Mhm. Back then, the amount of fucks not given was exorbitant. It, it, oh, absolutely. And so, the, it, thank you. I don't even know if I pronounced that right, but we'll figure it out from when Boothang start telling me I said it wrong. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this boy, he was estimated to be around four to six years old, weighed about 30 pounds, and he was three foot three. He was found naked but wrapped in a blanket in this box, and his hair was cut and his body was recently washed. So, so pretty much there were small scars on his skin, uh, on his skin, on his chin, groin, left ankle, which had suggested he underwent a medical procedure at some point, and head injuries seemed to be what caused his death. Now, the body was first found by a young man who was walking through the abandoned lot. Strangely, this man waited a full day before calling the police. Suspicious, Mm. right? Like, why would you wait a full day before calling the police? Yeah, I don't like that. But even stranger, a second man had previously found this boy's body, but didn't want to contact the police because he didn't want to get involved. That's fair. But then how did they find the second man who did see it because he didn't want to get involved? I feel like you just dug yourself into oh, a deeper true. hole. Wait a minute. Yeah. Right? One of so these weird. things is not like the other. So in hopes of finding the boy's identity, the police kept the boy at the morgue, and visitors from over 10 different states tried to identify the boy by looking for any significant marks, and there was absolutely nobody from those 10 states that claimed him. So because of that, the police sent out over 400,000 flyers of images of the boys to police stations, post offices, courthouses all over the country. Now, these aren't just flyers explaining the description of the boy. It had a picture of what the boy looked like in the box. So I've seen that picture, too. It is so fucked disturbing. up. It's disturbing. Yeah, in 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 not in uh, easier terms <laughs> and you see i mean it's a deceased little boy that's all i can say i mean trigger warning too late um you know it, his face it, it clearly looks like there was some sort of abuse going on from what you see um and it's just really sad i mean this just looks like a really beaten up boy that's sleeping but mm-hmm. he is in an internal sleep um, and even the American Medical Association sent out a description of the boy. But again, after all of this effort, no, there was absolutely this, it led nowhere for anybody. Damn. Yeah. So then the police compared the child's footprints to hospital records in the area. And fingerprints were taken of the boy. But again, there was no record to prove that this boy ever existed. Holy shit. Yeah. Absolutely none. 
So now let's go over some like key clues that were left at the scene of the crime. So the first clue, which is important, was the box that the boy was left in. And it contained a serial number, which allowed investigators to trace the box back to a JCPenney's about 15 miles away from where the body was dumped. And before the boy, the box was used to ship a bassinet. So could this have been the bassinet that this child had once slept in? Oh, oh my God. Now, the store had shipped 12 of those boxes. So it, it goes down to like 12 possible people. However, okay. all the purchasers paid in cash, leaving absolutely no record of who would have purchased these bassinets. So That's what we're saying. Pay in cash if you're going to commit a murder. Exactly. But eventually, eight of those 12 purchasers contacted the police when they read about the stories in newspapers to go on record that either they still had the boxes or had put them out for trash collection. So these people were just trying to cover their own ass. Like, look, I absolutely nothing to do with this. I hope you find the kid. And hopefully this helps narrow down your search. But, you know, just trying to save themselves if for whatever reason they were to be connected yeah so this still isn't really answering any questions right no but then the police were able to determine that the box was shipped to upper darby pennsylvania the second clue but again up there so they have this little location of upper darby pennsylvania but again this is just a location there's so many people in this world hasn't really been able to pinpoint anything from this point on. The second clue was that the blanket the boy was wrapped in, which was examined by the, the Philadelphia Textile Institute, it was believed that the blanket was made in either in Granby, Quebec, or Swannanoa, or North Carolina, but there was no way to determine where this particular blanket was sold since thousands were sold all over. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the third clue ended up that there was a hat that was found 15 feet away from the box. And the hat was labeled Eagle Hat and Cap Company and was made by the small company owner, own, owner, owner Hannah Robbins. <laughs> You're so Jersey, Ona. So, oh, my God. I know. I, I, I said that and I immediately regretted it. <laughs> so Robbins actually remembered the man who purchased this hat that was found at the crime scene because she customized it for him. And she described him as blonde between the ages of 20 to 26 and requested a, and the person had requested a leather strap and buckle to be added to the hat. But, of course, this guy paid in cash and she never saw him again. Oh, shit. Detec yep, that must be so frustrating, though. So to, like, frustrating. To know the prime suspect, but you can't, like, put your finger on them. Dead end after dead end. And detectives visited over 100 stores within the area, but there were no witnesses um, that saw this happen. Damn it! Yes. So there, but also, so that happened, but just, just wait, there's more. There were also strands of hair found on the boy's body, suggesting that there had been a haircut. A forensic artist, Frank Bender, believed that the boy possibly was raised in this household as a girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What? Think of this and just, and just hold on to this thought because we're going to come back to this at some point. Okay. With all these dead ends, though, 
let's get to the theories about what could have happened to the boy, right? Because okay. that's pretty much... I'm so pumped! This is, like, all the information that was given during the investigation. And this case went cold for a very long time and still is a pretty cold case. So the first theory comes from authors Lou Romano and Jim Hoffman, who came across a lead from a man who rented his house to a man who said he had sold his son at one point. So there's a theory saying that this guy... (laughs) So first of all, how the fuck does this come into conversation? You're just renting a house to a man and the guy just goes... Oh yeah, um how many bedrooms does this have? Oh, I just need one because I sold my son. Like it's fine. Like I don't you know, like how the fuck does that happen, right? Yeah. So that's not normal. So that's a so this could be the potential father. Very random. Then um a forensic pathologist examined the photos of the potential father and brother and found similarities in the facial structure of who the boy in the box was. A DNA sample was taken from the potential brother, and oddly, investigators did not say whether they would test the DNA to compare the potential brother to the DNA of the boy in the box. They only said they would, quote-unquote, investigate further. What the fuck were we supposed to do with that? Yeah, so there was never any... So they could have taken the DNA, tested it, and nothing happened, but we also can't say that that did happen and maybe they tested it and there was a match why they wouldn't push this further we don't know who this potential father was was he some sort of influence in in the police or criminal investigation teams i mean who is this guy we don't know holy shit so taken so also I'm, i'm having you guys remember a lot of stuff right now but stay with me Remember, It'll all come back to me, I'm sure. Remember this guy who sold his son, okay? Okay. So then the second theory comes around, and it's formed by medical examiner Remington Bristow, who examined the case for over 36 years. Bristow gathered newspaper clippings of the boy, spent thousands of dollars of his own money, and traveled all the way to Arizona and Texas for leads. I mean, this guy spent so much of his life trying to close this case out for justice for this poor boy. Oh, I love that. This, these are the type Bobby, of people... I don't love the reason, but I, you know. Yeah, these are the type of people that are just straight-up heroes. Yeah. So he even went as far as to carry a... This is kind of fucked up. He even went as far as to carry a mask of the boy's face in the briefcase. So he would go around to people... Whoa, what? Yeah, he literally had, like, a molding of this kid's face... And asking questions to people, if it just was going, you know, nowhere, well, you just pull out a fucking mask of this kid's, like, and puts it up to his face. It's like, do you recognize this kid now? Yeah, if I was, like, at Walgreens, like, you know, doing whatever, and a guy came up to me and held up, like, a mask of a child's face and said, have you seen this kid? Like, I'd immediately assume that he was the one who murdered the kid. Thousand percent. (gasps) Sorry, not sorry. Maybe. Maybe. He is trying to cover his own tracks. Framing himself. Ding, ding, ding. Kind of. 
Kind of. Not really. I don't really know what I meant by that. That was just me making it up as I go along. We need to get a legal team, I think. I definitely think we should. Can you ask your dad after this episode? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> okay. You know that I'm going to come to him in 20 years. Dad, I wanted for murder because of something I said when I was 23. And he's going to be like, God damn it, Lily, you are always a dumbass. <laughs> you are a lost cause. <laughs> So back to Bristow. So Bristow theorized that the boy died accidentally. The boy's fresh cut nails and hair indicated that he could have been very well taken care of, but perhaps the boy's family never came forward because they just didn't want to be charged with murder and want the drama of being a child killer. So, I mean, like, I definitely think that, like, like I, I, if God forbid something were to happen to a child of mine, and in that immediate reaction, I don't know how I would react. I don't think I would just put my kid in a box and leave them somewhere. Again, yeah, my guilty so conscience. But you don't know who these people are. They could be mentally unwell, and they just did not. They just didn't know what to do, and immediately just reacted, and that was their reaction. Um, again, we don't know who the family is, so it's hard to judge. So, based off of a psychic's clue, though. Bristow looked into a foster family that lived nearby where the boy was found. And at this family's 1961 estate sale, Bristow found a bassinet that he believed could have been previously packaged in the same box that the boy was found in. Oh, my God. So, ding, con- ding, ding, motherfucker. To continue on, Bristow began to theorize that the boy was an illegitimate child of the daughter of that foster family and was that abandoned by the daughter so she would not be revealed as a single mother because back then that was such a crazy thing Mm -hmm. even back then men weren't shit so (laughs) that's cool so Bristow would eventually pass in 1993 but shortly after Philadelphia detective Tom Augustine took up the case where Bristow had left off and on, on February 23rd of 1998 Augustine went to the home of Arthur Nicoletti the man who led the former foster home And Nicoletti's wife, Anna Marie, was the woman Bristow theorized to be the mother of the boy in the box. In addition to being Nicoletti... So, I just want to... We need to backtrack here. Okay. Arthur Nicoletti was the man who led the former foster home. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay. Nicoletti's wife, Anna Marie, was the Mm -hmm. woman Bristow theorized to be the mother of the boy in the box. But I thought they said it was the daughter of the foster family. Sounds oh, incestuous to me. Yeah, this is some, like, southern, like, yeet-yeet type shit. Yeah, this is, like, this is, mm-hmm, yeah. This is, ste- like, this is stepdad, help, you know, help me clean out the dryer type thing. Yeah. What? So confused. This, yeah, they, um, I'm trying to, like, say this without, like, sounding too fucked up. But he's fucking his stepdaughter, pretty much. Got it. I thought they were saying that the mother... I thought... Okay, okay, I get it. I'm with it now. Yes. Okay, got it. Yes. Or, well, I don't know if it was the stepdaughter or the daughter. Regardless, it's still fucked up. Yes, extremely fucked. So, um... Yeah, so... Um, in addition to being Nicoletti's wife, uh, it was the, it was the stepdaughter. I'm sorry, it was the stepdaughter. It wasn't the regular daughter. Okay, still fucked up. Still not condoning it. 
But Anna Marie then told Augustine that she did have a son who passed away in bizarre fashion with morgue records supporting her statement. His cause of death was electrocution from a nickel ride outside of a store. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, this woman just goes in to buy her groceries. Like, here's a nickel. Go play on the pony, Timmy. And then the kid gets fucking fried like a fried fish. That's so messed up. Yeah. So, but there was records of this happening. She wasn't trying to cover it. So now we're going to go to the last theory. And the last theory was from a psychiatrist in Cincinnati who contacted Augustine about one of her patients named Martha. She said Martha insisted on speaking to the police because she claimed her mother took her to a house where she handed an envelope over for a boy when she was 11. So let's talk about this. This mother supposedly bought a boy from some family. Could it possibly be that guy that rented from that person? Who said he sold his son? Uh-huh. 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 So Martha spoke with investigators stating that she was sexually abused by her mother and the mother wanted to do the same to the boy. She also claimed she beat the boy to death. Fucked up, bitch. Fucked up, bitch. And according to investigators, Martha's story added up. But even with Martha's lead, the police were not able to verify if the boy was who Martha claimed he was. There just wasn't enough evidence. So to this... So to this day, though, the boy's identity remains a mystery. His grave is labeled America's Unknown Child at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. Perhaps someday we will learn who he was and what happened to him. But until then, the case still remains unsolved. Holy shit. Yeah. And it just, it really does make me question why this potential father and potential brother, if their DNA was taken, why there has never been at least an announcement saying, look, we tested the DNA and there was nothing. Yeah. Oh, God, that's so... See, um, I just... Wow. There's just so many, like, wow moments, but not wow like I'm amazed. Wow like I'm kind of disappointed. This is just a... Not in the story, but in, like, the actions of the people in the story. I feel like there was so many things that could have been done to maybe Mm -hmm. help get us closer to an answer. Mm -hmm. But I do think that this woman, Martha, this last theory, this is the theory that I am leaning towards more. Yeah. I was about to ask you what you... Yeah, what your theory is i think that this was oh i think that this woman martha has a credible story and that this woman bought it from that potential father and brother yeah but maybe they were i mean i don't know why they sold their son i i don't understand but there must have been some sort of ties to some they someone in the police force knew that potential father or potential brother and they were protecting their identities. They were protecting... They, they were protecting them from showing off who... Like, this connection to DNA for some reason. Absolutely. I think that you find in a few of these cases, police, you know, like, not just the police, but the detectives. Well, I think you need to be a police officer to be a detective, but it could yeah. be wrong. Or, like, 
to before you can become a detective. Yeah, you like work your way from the bottom. Yeah. Um but I think that and in this, you know, on the side of forensics even, you know, you see a lot of corruption. In one of my cases, you know, which you'll see stay tuned, um <laughs> there's definitely signs of it. What is your theory on this? My theory, I I actually agree with you that I think that kind of the first, you know, theory that you gave and the last theory that you gave are intertwined, that there was the man who sold his son for whatever reason, you know, and I, I wish that there was kind of more about this guy so we could find a reason, but yeah. I mean, he, whatever reason he had, there was a reason. And he sold his son to this woman who was evil and the son, I mean, a woman like that who the daughter said that she sexually assaulted her. Mm -hmm. Like, I wouldn't put it past a woman like that to do a bunch of other crazy shit to another kid, you know? Oh, definitely. Maybe have him raised as a girl. Maybe have him, you know, maybe hurt him in one way or another. You know, like, that that kind of stuff all comes from the same type of person, a bad person. Yeah. I think that the reason why his nails were cut or his hair was cut was to eliminate how much DNA could be extracted from him. I don't think it was because he was being taken care of. Because if you see this picture of this boy, there's nothing nothing well kept about him. Yeah, that does not match up, you know. And also, like, look at me. Like, I'm well taken care of. I take care of myself. My parents help take care of me. Do you know how disgusting my nails are right now? Do you know how... You know how fucking greasy and scraggly my hair is? So. <laughs> oh, God. Ugh. All right, Lily. So that is my first story. Lily, what's your first unsolved story? Okay. I'm so excited about this. So my first unsolved story is, let me go back up to the top of my document, The Case of the Black Dahlia Murder. Oh, classic. I read a book about the Black Dahlia in, I think, either 8th or ninth grade. What was and it called? Was like, Do you remember? Severed. Severed. It was called, like, Severed, Cold, The Story of the Black Dahlia. Sponsor us, whoever published that book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I read this book, and the second that you said, do you want to do, like, unsolved you know, like, murders, I was like, yes, the black, like, that was the first one that came to my head, and when I asked you which ones you were doing, I was so scared you were going to say the Black Dahlia, because I'm so into this case. You know what's so funny is I looked into it, and I, I swear, I thought that this was just something that you would pick, <laughs> and I purposely didn't pick it, because I was like, I feel like this is a case that most people know about, that, like, there's a chance Lily would do this one. Oh my god, I'm so into this fucking case, it's not even funny. Alright, so tell us about it. Okay, so on January 15th, 1947, a woman named Betty Bersinger, or Bersinger, I don't know how to read it, um, was running errands with her child to a shoe local shoe repair store when she spotted something in an empty lot, which she believed to be a mannequin. It was white and had been separated at its waist. This, however, was not a mannequin. It was a dead body. Ooh. And we have a quote from Betty saying, I glanced to my right and saw this very dead white body. My goodness, it was so white. That's what people say about my dancing. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> they come back from the wedding. Oh, God, that one girl was so white. <laughs> um, the body was 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. She was found face up, stripped naked, with her eyes open, and sprawled out with her arms above her head. Ugh. There were three-inch-long slits on the corners of her mouth. She had, in fact, been cut apart at the waist. There was no blood at the scene, however, so the time of death was difficult to determine. And I remember reading, when I read this book, thinking, why was there, why, why is blood so crucial in the time of death? Mm -hmm. And I realized that's because blood coag coagulates. Yeah. And that blew my mind. So anyway, so she had been drained of all of her blood. Mm -hmm. um, and the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock, and she had also suffered a concussion. There were signs of her being bound and tortured. The cuts on her were very neat, so the knife used most likely had not had a serrated edge, like a kitchen knife or something. They were done in such a way that officials believed there was that this was the work of either a surgeon or someone with surgical knowledge. Huh. Yeah. So, and that kind of made me think kind of of, like, Jack the Ripper. Yeah, definitely you, you got those how, vibes. Yeah, right? Um... So some background on Elizabeth Short. She was originally from Medford, Massachusetts, and had moved to L.A. in hopes of finding stardom. She was a waitress and a cashier who faced bouts of unemployment from time to time. With dark black hair and an affinity for black clothing, she was given the nickname the Black Dahlia. Elizabeth's death made headlines for a whole month. Just think about that. Like, the only thing that I've seen in the headlines for a month straight is coronavirus. She was the coronavirus back then. Yes, exactly. Everyone, like, she was the talk of the town. Um, for the wrong reasons. For all, yeah. Um, I lost my place. Right. So nine months after her death, a letter arrived at the L.A. Examiner, including some of her personal items, her social security card, her birth certificate, photos, and an address book with some pages missing in it. Hmm. So most likely... Like, obviously, the reason the address book was missing pages is because the, like, killer's information was in there. Had to be. Yeah. Um, gasoline had also been used to remove any and all fingerprints. Throughout the case, 13 letters were sent. There was eventually, like, a smudged fingerprint recovered, but there were no matches in the LAPD's file at the time. It used the typical kind of, you know, like when you see like ransom notes in movies and they use like cut out letters from magazines uh -huh. and stuff. Yeah. So they did that. Ooh, creepy. Yeah. They, they used stuff like that and it was signed the Black Dahlia Avenger. Ooh. So 75 men who were listed in the address book were contacted, but majority of them only knew her briefly for things like one dinner date or a trip to the movies. So there were no leads there. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, uh, they even interviewed, this happened in Southern California. So they interviewed 300 USC med students. So they investigated those students, but to no avail. So, oh, so with that, let's get into the suspects. All right, let's so, hear it. So there were three suspects discussed. I mean, there were multiple suspects, but like there's like the big three. One of them was literally, like, the lead investigator 
like 60 years, fucking decades after all of this went down, said, yeah, I know who did it. I looked him in the eye. His car matched a car seen on the scene. I saw him walking past the crime scene, but he like never said who it was. And the case had gone cold by then. The hell? Yeah. So that's one guy. And he was like the last living investigator from the case. So that doesn't really hold much merit. You know, it's possible that he, you know, everyone else who would have known he was lying was out. Yeah. Was gone, you know, and couldn't speak out against him. So he was like, oh, yeah, I totally know who knew who did it, but I didn't have enough evidence. <laughs> Just like that. Absolutely. So the next suspect with a little more to him is Robert Manley, who was also known as Red. So Robert was a salesman and a former uh, army musician. He had noticed Elizabeth one month before her death at a San Diego bus station. He asked her if she needed a ride to where she was going, and at first she didn't talk to the strange man, but eventually did get into his car. (laughs) Genius. The two spent a month going on dates together and even at one point lived together, allegedly platonically. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um... And this was at a hotel in Pacific Beach after the place where Elizabeth was staying fell through. Okay. So then eventually the two went to L.A. Red took her to the Biltmore Hotel and left her there at approximately 6.30 on January 9th. This was the last place she was seen alive. So, and this was how many days? Like six days before her death, I think. Something like that, around a week before her death. So, Manley took a polygraph test and passed it. Okay. So, no one thought he was guilty. You can't always trust those. Especially if you're, like, like sociopaths regularly pass polygraph tests. Oh, definitely. And then he also, in 1954, was injected with sodium pentothal, I think, is... Pentothal, I think that was the second word. Anyway, sodium something. And that was at the time believed to be like a truth serum. But again, he came out of it innocent. He passed away um, decades later from an accidental fall. But get this. The day he died was 39 years to the day of the anniversary of her death. What weird Right? That's, but at the same time, it's like, if you're going to die on the anniversary of a death, which you were suspected for, why would you do an, a random number like 39? At least make it to 40. Make it in right? good like even number. Right? one more day without staging your fake-ass fall, Robert? Oh. Idiot. <laughs> um, Couldn't even die right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're so mean. Um, I'm sorry. We don't even know if he killed her. So, now on to, like... The juiciest suspect of them all, Dr. George Hodel. Okay. So George Hodel was a wealthy L.A. doctor described as, quote, a well-connected dashing man with a high IQ. He was in charge of a venereal disease clinic. So that gave him a lot of inside information with not just, you know, like the sex workers and everyone who came in, but Mm -hmm. also... Like, the sex lives of celebrities. Of course, yeah. You know, like, he knew a lot of people. So, though he was not a practicing surgeon, 
he breezed through medical school where he did study to be one. Okay. So here's a guy with surgical experience, someone capable of those neat cuts, right? That were found on her body. Definitely. Um... Let's see. Yeah, so that helped him fit the profile of Elizabeth's murderer. Also helping prove this are two pictures found in Hodel's home of a woman resembling Elizabeth. Handwriting experts also believe his handwriting matched that on the signature of the Black Dahlia letters. Mm. He also drove a black 1936 Packard, which matched the description of a car seen near the scene of the crime. Ooh. Right? So this is, like, already good. On top of that, he was also friends with a surrealist artist named Man Ray, whom Hodel, Hodel was believed to have idolized. This is significant because when Short's body was found, its condition and positioning resembled a painting of Ray's called Minotaur, which was bought by MoMA. And if you Google it and you've seen, like, the Black the black Dolly pictures are really gruesome, so I don't recommend, like, if you have a weak stomach or if you're easily spooked or, you know, I don't recommend looking at them. Um, but I did, I have seen them, and I Googled Man Ray Minotaur, and they are very similar in the way the body was cut, in the positioning Ooh. of the body. And there was also talk of another painting of his, um, possibly being the inspiration for the slits near her lips. Ugh. But I looked that up, and I don't remember... Let me check my Google history. Um, that is Okay, so, so the crazy. painting is called Observat- Observatory Time, The Lovers. And it's, but, and it's basically just a picture of lips in the sky. I mean, this is surrealism, so everything's nuts. Yeah. Um, I don't see a correlation between that and there being slits in her mouth. I think that's just a coincidence. Okay. But but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Don't sue me. Um, oh, I don't like this guy. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm pushing towards he's, he's the responsible one. Get ready for this for even more. Oh, so no. Hodel's daughter, who I'm a dumbass. I didn't write down her name. Sorry, lady. Um, <laughs> she also recalled posing nude for Man Ray as a child. What? What yes. in the Jeffrey Epstein is this? <laughs> she, <laughs> she said that her father used to host huge parties at their home near LA where celebrities and socialites would come. She ran away from home in 1949 and reported her father to the police saying he, and this is really graphic guys, so just a trigger warning, he tried to teach her about oral sex at age 11. Goodbye. Good fucking bye, you piece of shit. And at age 14, he offered her to his friends. <gasps> no! And at age 15, she gave birth to a child. <gasps> oh my gosh. Now, a Due to other allegations from the daughter, it is believed that George Hodel is not only that child's grandfather, but also possibly the child's biological father. No! Okay, this guy needs to not only be locked up for the death of the Black Dahlia, but for all his fucked up shit that he did to his daughter. Right? This guy is fucking insane. 
there was so much I was like trying to leave out because I didn't want this to drag on, but it's just so good. So, so juicy. So, he was later acquitted of incest charges what? after family members testified in court at character witnesses saying, no, he's such a great guy. All that bullshit. Oh, fuck off. In 1950, he moved, or possibly fled, to the Philippines of all places. Huh. And then, later, in 1967, the dead body of a woman was found in an empty lot, bisected and posed. Sound familiar? Oh, my God. George's son, Steve, also believes his father is the murderer, publishing all of his work. And he wrote a book, I believe, called, like, My Father is the Black Dahlia Killer or something like that. Um, let's How see. do you even, like, I mean, like, do you continue a relationship with your father? Like, what, like, what type of, like, How what, do you, that, right? what do you do with so, that? So, he publishes all of his research, and he's the one who found those photos of the woman who looks like Elizabeth Short. Mm-hmm. The son is the one who found those photos after his father passed away and he was going through his house or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he's the one who found those photos. Um, and he believes the two had a romantic relationship and had even been spotted together at a hotel in downtown L.A. Mm. On top of that, Steve also claims that his father could be responsible for the murder of a girl named Jean French. The murder happened only three weeks after Short. Jean also faced blunt force trauma to the head and was found oddly posed in a vacant lot. Huh. Yeah. Um, So now we're going into just more of, like, what his son is saying. So um, the letters BD were written on her in red lipstick. And according to those same handwriting experts, those matched George's handwriting. The same handwriting from the Black Dahlia Avenger letters. It was discovered that George had 50-pound sacks of concrete delivered to his house on January 9th, 1947, which is the same day that Elizabeth was last seen alive and less than a week before her body was found. So do you think he was going to bury her and then put her on concrete? So his son believes that the concrete was used to carry her body from the car to the lot. The bags of concrete somehow were used. How, though? Like, they laid her on the concrete. Oh, that's. I feel like that's a lot of work. Yeah, but there are pictures. If you look at the pictures from the scene, there are bags of concrete. What? And his son believes there are bags, and his son believes that those are the bags of concrete that were used to dump her body. Oh, my God. This... Need I say more? And the son also says that that mysterious death of that woman in Manila at the time, his father was living there, he only lived half a mile from the field where the woman's dead body was found. So Steve visited his childhood home in 2012 with a production crew, a former cop, and a search dog. The dog picked up the scent of human decomposition in a few spots on on the property. (gasps) And a soil sample tested positive for human remains. Oh, my God. The only thing is, though, that the uh, time period for the human remains was really broad. 
So it could have been from anywhere as of 2012, from between 20 and 100 years prior to the time they got the sample. Oof. So what it, are the odds? Yeah. So Steve claims, and so abruptly, all of a sudden, this guy was nuts. So he, Steve, his son, claims that his father had insider information about the LAPD corruption and prostitution, and the police covered his guilt to save their own asses. Ah, makes because sense. Because in 1950, the police listened to him. They had listening devices in his house. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, a, some guy, like, went to the LAPD office or, um, you know, couldn't find the tapes. He found records that they had been listening to him for, like, four months. And while the tapes were gone, the transcripts were still there. And what did the transcripts say? The transcripts said, quote, this is the best payoff I've seen between law enforcement agencies. I'd like to get a connection made in the DA's office. Oh, shit. They also are described as hearing the possible sound of, like, a woman screaming and being tortured in the basement of the house. What? Yeah. So Stephen Kay, a former L.A. County head deputy DA, stated that he believed the case had been solved, saying, quote, I would have no reservations about filing two counts of murder against George Hodel. At least. At least two deaths. Right, because you've also got the woman in the Philippines. And God only knows what other ones that, like, clearly just have not... Like either they're missing and like they just haven't found the bodies. I mean, this guy must have had such a big head and thought he can get away with literally anything mm-hmm. that he probably he probably went on a killing spree. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I just, I, God, this guy, this fucking guy. And so my theory, and Rebecca, of course, I'm going to ask you about yours. My theory with this one is that it was George Hodel that he was just like a psychopath sociopath everything just everything was wrong with this guy pedophile you know mm-hmm. on a power trip just everything bad that could have that uh, every bad characteristic that a person could have this guy has the yeah. end i i think he did it i second that and i think that the reason why i think some of the things that maybe he could hold against some of these officers was back then i mean People are still pieces of shit and cheat, but I feel like it was it, it was more obvious back then for people mm-hmm. to be doing it. Um, it was more of a common thing for men to be cheating on their wives uh, with sex workers and things like that. And I bet you yeah. a lot of these, these cops would go to this guy's practice and probably just... There was probably some stuff medical-wise medical that they didn't want being released. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this guy had all kinds of power. And they even, I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was like 2015 maybe, they went to the Black Dahlia house on Ghost Adventures. Did they? Yes. Was there any evidence? some spooky, kooky, ooky stuff. Oh, I need to rewatch that now because I definitely had watched it, but I have, I, they all blend into one at some point because I watched them all at once. But 
I have to check that out, and I want to read the son's book. Yes, exactly. I that was like I was reading the Black Dahlia book, and I was like, oh, I'm so reading Steve Hodel's book next, and I just like <laughs> never got around to it because I was like an eighth grader or a ninth grader, and I had shit to do. You obviously had bigger and better things to do. Uh, with your I life. had musicals to do and um, school of to course. skip. I don't so. blame you. <laughs> and school to skip. <laughs> I'm done. Okay. So, anyway, so yeah, I mean, I, not luckily, but. In, in a way, it's easier for us to theorize about older cases because we're not really, like, jeopardizing, you know, no one can, like, sue us for defamation yeah. because they're all dead. Yeah. So, like, I'm going to be careful in my next story about what I say. That is true. Because many of these people are still alive. So, anyways, that's that. Um, although maybe, like, I could public publish the case and get us some more <laughs> listeners. <laughs> make us go viral yes okay anyways okay. what's your next story so my next story actually um is something that's relatively recent as well um mm-hmm. this kind of seems to be something that i believe has been closed but i feel like there there should be some more investigating behind it and that mm-hmm. is the bizarre death of elisa lamb oh i love this case Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't love it because it's sad, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about this one. So I'm ready to hear what you have. Okay. So these are the facts. So Elisa Lamb was a 21-year-old Canadian tourist um, who was in Los Angeles and went missing. She was a student at the University of British Columbia at the time. So on January 26, 2013, she checked into the Cecil Hotel, and she was last seen on January 31st. Her body was then found in a four-foot-by-eight-foot water tank on the roof of the Cecil to- Hotel where she was staying a few weeks later on February 19, 2013. Now, let me tell you why they were even, they were even, like, they even found her body. So, because this is a random fucking spot to find a body, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people that were staying at the hotel, there are people that stay there for long term and then people that just stay there for the time being. Um, it's, in a, it's in a pretty sketchy part of L.A. I guess people are complaining about the water pressure. So, mm. yep. So the maintenance guy goes up to the water tank to see what's going on and bam, you find a body. That And they said that the water, not only their water pressure was weird, but the water, when they would turn it on, would have like black. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, if I were there and I drank any sort of water from that sink, I probably would just bleach my whole body. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, the last known images of her is from a surveillance video of her in an elevator at the hotel behaving in a bizarre manner. And in the video, she pushes elevator buttons, steps in and out of the elevator, and then seems to hide in the corner of the elevator. And this is surveillance footage from February 1st. So I'm going to post um, a clip, uh, some of the clips from, from the investigation of this elevator footage. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple things that are really off to me about this because mm-hmm. the elevator, um, if you look at the timestamp, first of all, from what's been released, there has been manipulation of how fast or how slow she actually is going. It's not in real time. Mm -hmm. And the footage that actually was real time 
minutes are like a minute is cut out. So what happens within that minute that was cut out? We don't know. You know what? I've seen that footage and that never occurred to me. Yeah. If you look at the footage, you see that it goes from seconds and all of a sudden the whole minute goes by and you're like, wait, why did that just switch? I did wonder about the speed, but I never like watched it or watched yeah. the timestamps. I never thought to, you know, cause I've just seen it in my, you know, like depths of the internet late at night watching YouTube. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she's acting in a really bizarre manner. And then it makes me believe, so this is surveillance footage from February 1st. Mm-hmm. There is no other footage that has been released of her entering the hotel, of her ever in the elevator at any other points in time. Why has there not been other videos of her? Why is there no other video evidence of her being in that hotel? Yeah, because, I mean, like, when you think about it, even just to compare, you know what I mean? I understand if, like, not, like let's say, okay, she's on, like, the sixth floor of that hotel. Yeah. Odds are she did not walk her, if she had a suitcase, I don't know, she didn't walk her suitcase all the way up those six flights of stairs. Mm-hmm. She probably took the elevator. So Definitely. even just to have to compare her behavior before you know like then you could see okay well she always stood in the corner of the elevator well she always you know i don't know looked both ways before you know she always peeked out of the elevator and looked both ways before stepping back in you know what i mean like you know what i mean like there there's gotta be some kind of comparison because as i said in my psychology class in 2015 although you know like yesterday (laughs) Um, you can't have a paradigm shift without the paradigm. That was my, my mind blowing. My professor ate that shit up because it was an <laughs> 8 a.m. <laughs> okay. So, um, so Elisa's parents had said that they received phone calls from her every day until the day that she had supposedly disappeared. And, um, it's important to note too, that when she was found in the water tank, she was found naked in the water tank. Her clothes were inside the water tank with her, but her phone has yet to be found. So where did her phone go? We don't know. Um, oh, shit. They haven't recovered the phone? No, no. Um, and while the latch on the tank could easily have been opened by someone, the roof of the building was locked and should have set off an alarm had she opened it herself. So how she got into the tank if she had gotten in there by herself, it should have at least set off an alarm for security to be like, all right, someone's on the roof. We got to, we got to get, we got to, you know, see who this is. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, um, so there's obviously like so many different theories of what happened to her. Um, but the fact that the fact that it's possible that guests at the hotel were drinking, brushing their teeth, and showering in water from the tank where Elisa's body could have been there for 19 days is so fucked up to me. Dude, what if someone, like, dies in my complex and, like, goes into the water supply? And get this. So the people that stayed there at that hotel when this happened didn't receive any sort of refund what they or, didn't get like reparations or anything absolutely nothing like it was just like oh sorry for the inconvenience but uh <laughs> your total like, is should have stayed should have stayed at the best western yep sorry not sorry that's what happens when you don't stay at brand name hotels i guess fuck a boutique hotel just kidding i stayed at one the other day My support local businesses out. okay so um 
so when she was first missing, so she had been missing for, it wasn't like they just found her and they're like, oh yeah, she must have been missing. Like there had been an open investigation looking for her for a while. And when she first went missing, a search was conducted with a police dog, but she was not located on the roof. Um, in the days that after she went missing, Elisa's family flew to California to try to find answers. And um, let's see. Um, did I hear do you my dog? Think, what the hell? Real quick, do you think that maybe the dog didn't pick up her scent because she was in the water tank and it had washed off? That See, a lot of times like when people are on the run... And they're in the woods, and there's dogs chasing after them. Usually, they'll they'll go into the water because even if they're making noise, sloshing in the water, usually their scent won't be detected by dogs. So that could make sense of why they didn't find her at first. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. Like, I read Frederick Douglass in high school. I know about people running to fucking get their scent off so they don't get you know, yeah, caught and whatever. Oh. I also have to add, so on top of the Cecil Hotel, like, not giving refunds to people that were staying in the hotel, um, they had people that were checking in at that point sign a waiver saying the hotel was not liable if they got sick. No! (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, at least the L.A. Department of Public Health told the hotel that they could stay open, but the guests were offered water bottles and just told not to drink from the tap. If, okay, no, no fucking way. There's no way. If I was walking to a no, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the fact, but you're still showering in it. That's the fucked up part. You're showering, showering in someone's like dead, like juices. You know what I mean? Ew. Yeah. So put um, that in like a spray bottle and wear it as like mm. O'Day dead body. <laughs> the new Chanel scent. Yeah, um, baby, you smell dead. Are you wearing something new? Yes. It's called La Morgue. So, uh, um, so an initial autopsy did not find a cause of death, uh, so they had to wait for toxicology test results. They later found that drugs did not play a role in her death. Um, there were no visible signs of trauma on her body, and the toxicology test results didn't find anything in her system that could have contributed to her death. So at the end, Elisa's death was eventually ruled an accidental drowning. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where some of the theories come into play, and this is kind of where I'm leaning towards, just evidence-based wise. So the coroner's report also listed bipolar disorder as one of Elisa's significant conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess from what the sister had said too, the sister had explained that she had been on several different like medications for Mm -hmm. certain mental illnesses she didn't go into details of like what exactly she took Mm -hmm. but like she had been on like three or four different things and for those that do know medicine um sometimes taking certain medications even if you take them for a while there could be complications down the road and could lead to um different outbursts and manic situations Oh, absolutely. I've been on those medications and done some crazy shit. Yeah, and, like, it, it could work for a while, and then one day it just doesn't. And it's it's a scary situation, but it's something that you can't rule out. Yeah, I mean, and also, like, a lot of, and, like, antipsychotics and antidepressants and mood stabilizers, right? Like, those all come with a potential side effect of it worsening your condition. Mm-hmm. So, 
even if you know whatever she was suffering from was very mild it could have exacerbated it to the point where she was hearing voices where she was thinking you know i gotta get in this tank i gotta take my clothes off or the voices are telling me to get in this tank and take Uh my clothes off or it was a ghost that possessed her you never know so actually we are gonna get to that sort of theory at some point but i'm excited yeah sorry so you're you're good you're good so um it is important to note too that originally in this hotel she was like a part of like this um, I guess they kind of have like a hostel sort of situation there where people, okay. you know, like where people stay, like say in one room, but there's five people sleeping yeah, in bunks yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So she had been in that situation, but then was moved to a single room when people that were in her hostel were saying she was expe- like she was acting very bizarre and weird and they felt uncomfortable around her. <laughs> so that could be an indication of. Um, the beginning signs of some complications with her medication, or maybe she wasn't even taking her medication. That could have been it as well. Oh, she could have been off her meds. Exactly. That's a dangerous game, Elisa. Uh-huh. So, um, again, some theories go around, including drugs, hallucinations, mental breakdowns, possession, and even ghosts. See, we can't do an episode without some ghosts. Never. It just can't happen. Always ends up back to being ghosts. So um, there's one wild theory that correlates strangely to tuberculosis, which was going around at the time of L.A.'s Skid Row, which was near the hotel. So people are thinking this was maybe a possible side effect of her going through symptoms of tuberculosis. Um, But then there was a test to determine whether or not... um, but then there's a test to determine whether or not someone has tuberculosis, and the name is actually called, get this, Lamb-Elisa. Wait. Yeah. And that happened before? Yeah. But, like, her autopsy showed that she didn't have tuberculosis, but, like, what are the odds that, like, tuberculosis was going on during the time that she was there and that the tuberculosis test is called Lamb-Elisa? Yeah, I don't like that at all. Weird. Imagine, imagine a coronavirus ward named Ruber Rebecca. Yeah, I'd, I'd, weird, spooky, kooky, stuff. So, um, her sister did say while she didn't list all the medications that she was on, she said she was on Welbutrin, which was an antidepressant, lamotrigine, yeah, that an anticonvulsant. You do. It's an anticonvulsant, and then, uh. Ketepa, ketep- yes. Oh my God, Jesus Christ! Well, you should have just done this fucking case. Um, it's an, it's an anti-epileptic and mood stabilizer. Um, so just a bunch of different medications that is just uh, you know, it's like just a, a what is it? A medicine cocktail. Like holy crap! Like so much. Yeah. So quetiapine is a heavy, heavy drug. It's not heavy in the way that. You know, like, it's, like, addictive. I mean, I'm sure you can get addicted to anything. I've seen my strange addiction. But um, it really, really changes your mental state and alters it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, heavily. There are people who, I mean, quetiapine, I think, is the same as Seroquel, right? Let me look that up real quick. So while you're looking that up... Um... I like I said I will be linking the videos of her in the elevator. It does look like she's talking to someone mm-hmm. that then again she's hiding from them. This yeah, so brings on the th- is real quick is used to treat depression, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. So Okay. 
if she was, I mean, just because she was taking it with her sister doesn't mean she was taking it at the hotel. Exactly, exactly. Continue. Moral of the story is, if she hadn't taken her meds, then take your meds, guys. (laughs) Take your meds. Jesus Christ, take your fucking meds. Um, So, there, this comes a theory of if she was talking to somebody, it could be, you know, in her head, or it could have been ghosts. So, the the hotel was built in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently in the 1980s, serial killer Richard Ramirez, who was known as the Night Stalker, lived at the Cecil for months in oh 1985. Oh, my God, I did not know that. Yes. So could it be the spirits of some of his victims? And then in the 1960s, a woman jumped out of a window of that hotel, killing a pedestrian. So a lot of dark history before even the death of Elisa Lim, which has just added on to more tragedy at this hotel, more dark energy, more mystery. Why did all of this happen? Is there, is this, is this hotel on some Native American land that we don't know about? You know what I'm also thinking? What? There are probably some spirits in that hotel. It's possible that someone severely mentally ill is just easy prey definitely it could have been a little bit of both i definitely definitely could agree that there's a possibility that it could have been just the the best of both horrible worlds you know of just poor can no los dos (laughs) seriously why i mean i'd rather you know i'd rather it be neither but um (laughs) true but it's just it's it's such a sad case for not only Elisa Lamb, but for her family. Um, 19 days going missing and then being found in such a weird circumstance. You have to understand, too, that the water tank that she was found in, she would have had to climb up like this, like, I believe it was a 20-foot ladder. Mm-hmm. Let me see what exactly they said. Oh, it was climb up a 10-foot ladder on the side of the tank, open a 20-pound lid, then get into the tank and then close back the 20 pound lid. So 20 pounds is not that heavy, but I just still feel like that's a lot of effort to then close the lid on yourself too. True, but I mean like when you're manic, you are unstoppable. That is true. It's like you have like superhero powers or some shit. Like I remember, okay, I remember. think do i want to share this let's share it (laughs) i remember i was i don't remember what happened but i was arguing with my brother and i started like swinging at my brother i was like five feet at the time my brother's like six feet tall my brother I'm, I'm like, trying to hit him and he was, like, doing... You know when you hold your arm out to someone swinging at you? Yes! And they can't hit you? It was like that. I was, like, scrappy-doo in this shit, right? But he kind of gave me the lightest nudge and I fell to the ground. But... And I fell... I remember him barely, like, just kind of being like, yeah, Because <laughs> he's so much fucking bigger than me. Just a boop. Yeah, he booped me, right? He booped me, and I fell to the ground. But when I fell to the ground, the adrenaline rush of it all, I jumped right back up. Ooh. You were like, what was it, The Undertaker? Yeah, exactly. 
Like shit, like, I mean, and so think if, if someone's really going through it mentally. Yeah. Like they are like, you know how like there's always those videos of crazy people doing crazy shit on Twitter and they're like, the crackheads are on, uh-huh. are unstoppable. Like, no, the manic people are unstoppable, sweetie. Yeah, it's, it's insane when you see those videos. It's sad seeing those videos, but it really is. It, you continue to watch it because it really is unreal what some of these people do. Like they are, they have this, uh, un, like this, this speed and this power that comes from nowhere. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, yeah, it, it's quite possible that she had that agility to think something, something either, you know, either she was thinking something human was coming after her or she believed and there were signs of something paranormal coming after her uh-huh. and she fled and okay. it is quite possible that she had that kind of stamina to just climb that ladder and plop herself in the water tower so we've talked about the theories of you know her going through a manic situation talk mm-hmm. about possibility of ghosts manipulating her into doing this to herself but mm-hmm. we have to also circle back to the other theory possible theory of um, why there was a timestamp that there was a minute taken off of her in the in the elevator. Okay, I've never considered this. I'm listening. Enlighten so, me, Rebecca. Enlighten me. Could there be why? Who, first of all, if there was a minute shut off, that what happened in that minute? Why was it taken off? Mm-hmm. And could this be because it was someone in the hotel that worked at the hotel that it was a cover-up it mm, exactly could there have been something going on they saw maybe that she was a little mentally unstable and wanted to take advantage of her holy shit rebecca you are blowing my fucking mind i mean because it looks like in the video She's like, it looks like she's kind of doing some sort of sign language in a way. She's holding okay. the doors if she's like trying, like she's waiting for somebody. She's like a little impatient. She's like moving around. Like, it's, so is it maybe she was waiting, but maybe she was hanging out with somebody? Could it have been she was waiting for someone that worked at the hotel that maybe lived at the hotel? Someone that's in just, the hostel, maybe? That's just something that I'm thinking of because why, why has, why have we not been able to have the real footage raw? unedited of any kind why we might not be ready for it or maybe nothing happens and she just stands there in the corner yeah but like then let us see the full video don't take a minute out of the video like i mean there's a lot of second seconds of that where she's just standing there just doing nothing why didn't you cut those out why did you cut a whole minute out what happened in that minute it would answer so many questions i believe um, and that would even be answering the question that if they, if nothing did happen and they just cut the minute out because nothing happened, then we could be more confident in the answer that it was just an accidental drowning. She went through an episode and she did that. Um, but yeah, so that is the story of the bizarre death of Elisa Lam. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Lily. So last but definitely not least, tell us your unsolved mystery. This unsolved mystery is also recent. This is the tragic but also unsolved death of John Benet Ramsey. Oh, this one gets me every time. Yeah, so December 26th, 1996, only a few weeks after I was born. 
Um, let's make this about me, shall we? <laughs> Sorry, I got excited. Um, in Boulder, Colorado, Patsy Ramsey claimed to find a ransom note for her daughter, six-year-old John Bonet, on the back staircase. She called the police at 5.52 a.m. to report John Bonet as missing. Only the family was home, her mother Patsy, her father John, and her nine-year-old brother Burke. Less than eight hours later, the body of Jean Bonnet was found in the basement. It was found by her father. She had duct tape over her mouth and a smooth cord around her neck. Police say that the crime scene was disturbed by people coming and going all day. Mm. The police themselves had not searched the house, saying that there was no reason to believe that Jean Bonnet was still in the home. Jean Bonnet was a frequent participant in childhood beauty pageants and had won several titer, t- titers, <laughs> titles. So, and, you know, listener discretion is advised because this one is, you know, much like the boy in the box, very sad and very gruesome, especially because this one has a little more detail to it. Mm-hmm. So the autopsy ruled that Jean Bonnet died from blunt force trauma, but the coroner's report ruled that strangulation was the cause of death. DNA was found on both her pajamas and her underwear, belonging to an unidentified man. Also, two sets of unidentified footprints were found in the house, and a piece of rope was found outside near Jean Bonnet's bedroom. However, no unidentified prints were found in the freshly fallen snow outside the house. The ransom note that they found requested $118,000 for the return of Jean Bonnet, which is similar to the amount that her father had gotten for a bonus that year. Interesting. It is addressed to Mr. Ramsey and claims to be from, quote, a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction. It also threatened to behead Jean Bonnet if the family called the police or FBI. The letter was signed SBTC. The unusual amount was mysteriously close, as I said. Sorry, I guess I wrote that twice, to the amount that Mr. Ramsey had received as a bonus that year. The most interesting fact about the ransom note is that it was written on pen and paper that was found inside the house. Ooh. Right? How great. Imagine that. Okay, you have two kids. One of them is fine. One of them, you know, you find a ransom letter. Later on, you find her dead. Mm-hmm. And then they say, yeah, by the way, that first hint that you found that your child was in danger, that ransom note, written on your own personal pen and paper. Uh. So it might not have been in, like, the Ramsey letterhead, but it belonged to them. Too close to home. Right? Honestly, like, I would... I don't know. I just... Killing a family's child is going too far already, but then using their own pen and paper to write them a ransom note threatening to behead their child? Oh, that's a that's big another, fuck you. Like, really? That's just adding insult to injury. Mm-hmm. So, analysis of the notepad, however, showed that a practice note must have been written first, and part of that practice note was found later. Where? In the house. Oh, shit. Yeah, so um, the fact that the killer entered the house, wrote a practice note, then the actual note, then killed Jean Benet, feels improbable to many investigators. 
Most ransom notes are prepared beforehand, and this led to suspicion falling on the Ramsey family. This person took too much time. Right? And I remember a couple years ago, there was, I think, a 2020 special on it that revealed a lot of interesting things. I remember it airing, and I remember talking to my parents about it. And one of the things that they did was time how long it would have taken someone to do all this. And it was not a lot of time for someone to break into the house, write a practice note, then and not get caught. Yeah. Right? And they did, you know, it showed a lot of stuff that, you know, I'm not necessarily going to go into right now. Um, there are several theories as to what happened, but none of them are proven. First, investigators considered that Patsy may have accidentally killed John Bonet and then created an elaborate hoax to cover it up. Second, some believe that the brother Burke accidentally killed her and then the parents created the cover-up, considering that they have just lost one kid, they're not about to lose another. And um, the autopsy, however, indicates that John Bonet was alive as she was being strangled, so the idea of a cover-up for an accidental death doesn't necessarily fit. Handwriting analysis showed that the father did not write the note, but analysis of Patsy's handwriting was inconclusive. Oh, inconclusive. Yeah, so they said, no, it's not the father who wrote this ransom note, but the mother, we can't say yes or no. Damn. That's unsettling. Despite this, uh, what were you going to say? That's just super unsettling. Yeah, right? So despite this, a grand jury in 1999 decided to indict the Ramseys on on charges of child abuse resulting in death, but the DA at the time did not sign the indictment due to an alleged, quote, lack of evidence. In addition, DNA evidence from the scene exonerated the Ramseys. So who could it have been? Some believe that a local man named Bill McReynolds, who had visited the home two days before the death, may have been responsible. He dressed up as Santa Claus and visited local homes. Also, his own daughter, this man's own daughter, had been kidnapped about 20 years before the murder. Oh, shit. Yeah, also, uh, his wife had written a play about a young girl getting molested and then murdered in a basement. What? Was this yeah. before or after John Bonet? Um, I think the play happened before. Oh, shit, what? Yeah, so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, in McReynolds' own words, quote, her murder was harder on me than my operation. She made a profound change in me, end quote. After the murder, he even brought a vial of glitter. Uh, was this before the murder? I think it was before. I don't remember if this is before or after the murder. I might have written that wrong. Um, he brought a vial of glitter given to him by John Benet into his surgery. Huh. So... This was given to him, I believe, because when he dressed up as Santa Claus, he never received gifts back except for from John Bonet. Ah, all right. Yeah. So at least that's my understanding. So I'm trying to be extra careful with this one since a lot of these people are still alive, a lot of the suspects, <laughs> and we don't have a legal team yet. Um, so he asked his wife if he died in the surgery 
to mix that vial of glitter in with his ashes. What? How fucking weird is that? It's weird. Definitely weird. But it's but sweet. It's, but I'm also thinking that maybe he felt some connection to John Bonet because he had lost his daughter from a kidnap. Because I don't, I mean, did the kid ever get found? Oh, what? true. So yeah, maybe yeah, he yeah, kind yeah. of like wow, sees a little bit of his daughter in John Bonet and like felt like this connection. Yeah, like the daughter he lost. Yeah. Like and it's so creepy, she but passes like. away and he loses this one. Yeah. 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 Okay, yeah, you're valid in that. That's true. Yeah, and no concrete evidence ever linked him to the murder. So the next suspect was Gary Oliva, a neighbor of the Ramses. In 2000, four years later, Oliva was arrested on drug charges, and a photo of John Bonet was found in his backpack. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. Later, in 2016, he was arrested on child pornography charges. Ah, no, no, no. Yeah, and when asked about the photo, Oliva said, John Benet's murder touched me very deeply. I felt she was an exceptional girl whose death was an exceptional loss. I felt the need to build a monument, a shrine, to remember this little girl. I just think Michael, he was creepy. Yeah. Mike, and... The truth is that there is a lot. She was like a local star, right? She's won mm -hmm. all these pageants. I believe her mother was a beauty queen as well. So they were like the talk of the town already. Mm -hmm. And then to lose her. But, I mean, four years later to be carrying a picture of her in her backpack. That's in weird. his backpack. That's weird. You know, I that's, that's just odd. So, but yeah, wanting to build a shrine to her? Uh-uh. Uh-uh, no way, no ma'am, no sir, no no anything. Yeah, me, me no likey. Yeah. So a high school friend named Michael Vale, a friend of Oliva, said in an interview that Oliva called him a day after the murder and said, quote, I hurt a little girl, I hurt a little girl. <gasps> Could this little girl he was referencing be Jean Benet? Could it be a little girl in pornographic photos since he had child porn? Who knows? Oof. He then revealed that he had hurt the girl in Boulder, Colorado. Records show that no other little girl was harmed in that area that night. Mm. Oliva had also attempted to strangle his own mother with a telephone cord. However creepy he may be, his DNA was not a match for the DNA found on Jean Benet's, uh pajamas and underwear. Ah, damn. So, yeah, and, yeah. So, the final suspect uh, is John Mark Carr. He was an elementary school teacher and a divorced father. He did not become a suspect until 10 years later in 2006. At that time, he confessed to the murder of Jean Bonnet in an email to a journalism professor named Michael Tracy. They emailed back and forth for four years. Mm. Tracy said he heard a, quote, truly dark side of the human psyche. But he had to pretend that it was okay and he wasn't sitting in judgment because otherwise the communication would have ended. Smart, right? Just tolerate the creepiness because <laughs> without that, you're just going to get nothing. And who knows what kind of details this man, you know, this journalism professor might have gotten. Yeah. So, um, 
he called it the worst experience of his life. Oh, God. In his emails, Carr used similar wording as was found in the ransom note. He even used Patsy's mother's nickname, Nettie, in an email, which was odd because it wasn't a friend. He wasn't a friend of the family. He confessed that he had knocked Jean Benet out with a flashlight, then carried her to the basement. She awoke. She awoke, and he told her she was in the basement. He claimed that he was in love with her, and that quote it really hurt him that she quote stayed there in the basement, what? and that her father found her like that. Carr was tracked down in Bangkok, Thailand, of all places where he had relocated to escape child pornography charges in California. Oh, my God. However, yeah, right? However, Carr's DNA also did not match the DNA on the scene. In fact, Carr was not even in Colorado at the time. He was never charged, but he stated that he did not act alone. Remember, there were two sets of footprints on the scene. Mm. So, I mean... This is just, this whole case is just a bunch of dead ends. It's so frustrating. I mean, I like it's such an interesting story, but every time I hear it, it frustrates me because I learn something new, but all the new information still doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it just does not add up. So, and the thing is that it's quite possible that this man, who was so disgustingly in love with this child and wanted to marry her, is just doing anything to be to remain connected to mm -hmm. her, even if it's connecting to a murder that he wasn't around to commit. People are fucked in the head, so this, like, makes complete... Like, I mean, this isn't the craziest theory that he just uses as an excuse to get closer to her and be affiliated yeah. with her. I mean, it's really his only shot now because she's not around for him to... I mean, honestly, it's he's better off in Thailand, but if she had still been alive, shit would not have gone well. Definitely not. So, Dr. Henry Lee, famous from the O.J. Simpson trial, examined the DNA evidence and suggested that it actually may be transfer DNA from the manufacturing process mm. and not all that significant to the case. This means that DNA should not have ruled up any suspect Ugh. and opens the case up wide open oh, once again. No. It's a good thing, but a bad thing, because it's like... Like, where do you go from there? This case is so crazy that even a confession means nothing. Yeah. That's how crazy this fucking case is. <laughs> Literally. But I think with this one, like, I have a theory after watching the, uh, after watching the special and hearing stories because, you know, there's more details that I haven't gotten into because I just didn't have time mm -hmm. but i think i'm gonna stay away from my theory on this one because a lot of these people are still around and i don't want someone to find this i a thousand percent agree and i and it's not even for me it wasn't even the legal part of it like and i think that that's so interesting that we ended you know each story we've had a theory and then the last one we don't um and that's i think it's a perfect way to end because um, I don't have a theory because every time I have one, it changes. Every yeah. time I hear the story, um, I think, you know, it went from, you know, thinking the mom did it. And I think she's passed away, right? 
I think she uh, passed away of cancer. Let me look it up. Um, and, you know, it just goes through each family member to different people. I just, it's so hard because... Yeah, she's passed away now. We, we're given X amount of information, and we don't even know what else is out there that just hasn't been disclosed. Because is it is it technically still an open case? I think it might be. I think it might just be cold. Because... But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see if, like, they retest the DNA and see if anything pops up from there. If maybe this person that had committed the murder, if they've done something where they would be now in the database. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's another thing. Going, this is going way back to, like, the second case, but going back to the Black Dahlia that I was thinking about was, okay, they ran when they got the Black Dahlia letters and they found, like, a smudged half a fingerprint on one of them, Mm -hmm. they ran it through the database, their database, right? I don't know if they had, like, a whole-ass computer or whatever, but whatever it was, they did the research, and it didn't match anything. But then they arrested suspects, and I don't know if they compared that fingerprint. Huh. Right? And just a flashback to, like, an hour ago, but... That would be an interesting thing to think about, because... yeah. Yeah, but back Anyways, to the JonBenet thing. Those are our unsolved cases. Hope you liked them. Holy crap. That was a lot to unpack. And I think this may be our longest episode ever. And I am really? so here for it. Yeah. We're going on like two hours, Lil. Holy shit. Yeah. Crazy. So thank you, all our boo things that have stayed to the end to listen to this. We hope you enjoy- enjoyed this episode as much as we did recording it because... This is a pretty cool one. I love being able to bounce off different theories. And I love that at the end, we were still able to bring in some spooky kooky ooky ghost theories into it as well. Always stay spooky kooky ooky. So on that note, guys, thank you so much for listening. Lily, do you have anything else to end off with before we shout out our socials? Um, m- uh, whew. I thought of a really good one on my lunch break the other day, and I thought, that's so good, I don't need to write it down. And now it's gone. I don't know. Uh, How about just don't fucking murder people, because if you don't get caught, you will be a suspect, and everyone's going to hate you forever. And moral of the story, if you have a good thing to say at the end of your podcast episode, write it down. And don't think you're going to remember it. You know what? We've gotten a couple DMs. Rebecca's right. We get DMs saying, I want to start a podcast. How do I start? Uh, Write shit down. That would be a good start. Yeah. All right. All right. So follow us on Instagram at Just Gooey Things Podcast. Our personal Instagrams at Rebecca Ruber and at Lily Baldessari. Twitter. JGT Podcast. Facebook like page. Just Gooey Things Podcast. Facebook private group. Just Gooey Things Podcast. Donate to our Patreon. Just Gooey Things Podcast. And if you or someone you know has a paranormal experience they'd like to share in our show, feel free to email us at JustGoolyThingsPodcast at gmail.com. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, you know what to do. Rate us five stars and leave us a dope-ass review. And if you don't listen to us on Apple Podcasts, that's okay. Screenshot your episode that you love from Just Gooey Things and post it all over your social media and tag us wherever you see us. So thank you again, Boo Things, for listening, and we will talk to Boo next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.